1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. For they, they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits visits us. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everyone. My name's Prash. I'm the Senior Minister. Very warm welcome. If you're new or visiting with us or you're back after a while, it's great to have you in the building. Um, you've joined us, as um, those who've been around for the last few weeks would know, uh, at the end, actually, of a series we've been uh, looking at uh, across our services called Life Together. We've spent this month thinking about um, what God's call and purpose for his church here in Willoughby Chatswood and Artaman is and what that implications that has for our life together. In part, because actually as a church, one of the things we think we really want to see um, repeated and, and growing is um, a sense of our life together. We want to be a church that celebrates together for the glory of Christ. Now, if you've come for the first Sunday or after a while, you've come for a good Sunday because we have brunch together afterwards as, a, as just an opportunity to live out in, um, in fact, this, this desire that we have for our church life, that when we get together, Sunday is one of those kind of significant moments of gathering together, we get to celebrate together. And uh, at the heart of this kind of characteristic of our church life is a question we've been posing throughout the month. What does this compelling community look like? This is effectively saying we want this great experience of life together, of community And we've been asking ourselves, what does the Bible say to us about the very shape of this community, this communal life? And to do that, we've been looking at the images the New Testament um, gives us of the church to help understand what biblical community looks like. 
In the first week, we talked about the church as the family of God. We used 1 Peter, 1 John 3. We, we talked about us as a family and how that calls us to a, a desire to care for one another and love one another deeply. In the week two, we talked about Paul describing the church as God's field and, and how actually that calls us to acts of generosity to one another. Generosity grows, grows the field of God and uh, week three, we talked about the church as a temple, not as in a building temple, but the people themselves gathered together are this great place where we see the worship of God enacted. Last week, we said that the church is a body in the New Testament. It's described as a body which draws us into service of one another, mutual care for one another, uh, just like the various parts of the body are reliant on each other. So we are reliant on each other. So these have been the four images that we've used to, to kind of look at the, the facets of this diamond, which is God's church, God's community. And each time we've had challenges. And so this week, as we come to the last week in this series, uh, we use this passage. It's a, it's, a, it's a well-known passage when you're thinking about the church from 1 Peter chapter 2. And in verses 9 to 12, which is probably the bit that we'll focus on most this morning, this is what Peter says. He says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And Peter is using a whole heap of language here, which was actually used to describe the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, in Deuteronomy, this is how Israel is described. This is how Moses describes how God sees them. They're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And what Peter is saying is that the church, we are this, a nation, God's nation. Now, this is pretty extraordinary because Peter, you know, we think about ourselves, oh, this, this building, if, if you've been here for a while, you'll know it's about 150 years old, this building, or a little under. Uh, people have met on this site for over 150 years. You think, oh, that's the history of St. Stephen's. But actually, Peter is saying, no, your history, my history, our history as God's church goes back thousands of years to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through to David and Solomon, they are our people. That is our history. They are the heirs of God's great promises. And so we also, as God's church, are that nation. We are given those great promises. This is our history as much as it's the history of the Jewish people. It is the history of God's church. And what's, what's well, Peter then goes on, just look at what he says, though, about this group. He says, they are chosen they are royal. They are holy. That means they're set apart for God. They are God's special possession. This is, this is extraordinary. You might think, oh, well, that applies to particularly, I guess, Israel, when, you know, David and maybe Solomon, those two kings who, even if you're not a churchgoer, you've probably heard of King David, maybe even King Solomon. King Solomon, the great king for whom the, the Queen of Egypt came to see. That applies to them. But Peter uses that language and he says to those people who are reading his letter, this is who you are. Think about the context. 
If you've read this letter before, at the start, from the very first verses of this letter, we, we are told that actually this is a letter that's travelled all through East Asia. And it's gone from house church to house. So he's, he's, people who are reading this are you know, sitting with 30 or 40 people in a little house. And, and Peter is saying to them, you are this. You are these chosen people. You are this holy nation. You are God's special possession. And what that means for us, you know, our church, we have a vision. We long to be a church made beautiful, diverse, and large by the gracious work of Christ. It's, it's just riffing off Revelation 7-9. That's our longing. But actually, Peter says, we're already that when we're in God's church. We are already chosen. We are already royal. We are already God's special possession. And you, you think about this, this gathering, there's 80 or 90 people in it. It doesn't seem all that remarkable. But God calls us by faith to recognize the very special nature of God's church. And this is not unusual. It's not unusual for God to choose a small group of people and say, you're special. In fact, this is the story of Israel. You might think of Israel as a big nation of people, millions of people. But actually, here's what Moses says to Israel, having rescued them out of Egypt. He says, God did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other people, for you were the fewest of people. This is God's pattern, actually, to take what's small and fairly insignificant, relatively speaking, and bestow on them great honour. And great privilege. And God has done that for his church. You might think of all the mistakes, all the failings of the church. You might think of all you might have experienced heartache and pain at the hands of people in the church. And those things are real. And those things are to be mourned and to be changed and to be rejected. But the truth is. Even before we live out that reality, God sees us as this amazingly beautiful, royal, majestic group of people. This is how God... I was reading 1 Corinthians this morning in my Bible reading. Paul says at the start of it, he's talking in that letter to perhaps the most diabolical congregation in the New Testament. But he starts by describing them as holy and sanctified, set apart. I mean, he'll go on to tell them all of the things that are wrong with the way they're doing life together. But his starting point is this. And so though this might be our longing in some senses, it is already true in a profound sense. God loves this group of people. He has chosen them and marked them out as his special possession. And that is what God calls us to accept from the start. We are a nation. God's nation his royal priesthood, his special possession. Now, when you think about nation, being a nation, that might actually make you feel a bit, um, a bit finicky because the idea of nationhood is probably not that great. It's not a great concept in our culture anymore. We think of nationalism. We think of people banding around you know, a set identity and then opposing themselves. So when God says in this passage, the church is this people, this priesthood, this nation, you might think that that's a bad thing. That's a divisive thing. 
And it's true that in our culture, nationalism, and it's not actually just our time, like it's the story of history, isn't it? Like nations are in a sense what cause wars as people band together against others. So nationalism is in itself a terrible thing, but that's not what God's describing here. God is creating a nation that's altogether different. First of all, he's creating a nation from all nations. So it's a nation actually that crosses the boundaries which we want to erect around each other. So this is already that. But look at the purpose for which God creates. The purpose of this nation is not to kind of build itself up, to establish itself. Look at what Paul, Peter says. So he says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. And then he goes on to say that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter says, we are a nation, and therefore what that means for our life to get, because that's always the question we've been asking. We've said, what's the image of the church, and what does that mean for our life together? Peter says, we're a nation, that's a way of thinking about the church, but what does that mean for our life together? That we might declare, what's good about us? No. What's good about God? Instead of being focused on the community, Peter says the purpose of the community is to be focused on God, to declare the majesty, the wonder, the magnificence of God. That's the purpose of us as the church. And now this is, again, you might think, oh, well, this is a bit of a deviation from the story of Israel. But it's not, actually, because Israel was fundamentally placed in the middle of all these nations for a very clear purpose. Here's what the prophet Isaiah says to them. He says, I, the Lord, have called you. God has given him a message. He says, I, the Lord, have called you. And can hear the language of 1 Peter here, right? Or the, this language being replayed in 1 Peter. I have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the peoples and a light for the Gentiles. Gentiles was another way of the Old Testament writers talking about the other nations. Israel put in the world to be a light to the other nations. You think back to the previous language, to declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Can you see the language is overlapping? So this is actually the story of Israel. And now that the church is the new Israel, so to speak, the new nation, its job remains. What Israel's job? Now, if you're not a Christian in the building, this is great news for you. It means that this is exactly where you should be. This is what the the church was, in a sense, created and established in part for you. Uh, This is what a former uh, English archbishop said. He said, The church is the only cooperative society in the world which exists for the benefit of its non-members. You're not a member. You're most valued in this space, in other words. Last week we talked about serving as a dynamic in our church life. That is a call on God's people. If you are not a believer, don't be put off. We're here to serve you with the explicit purpose and desire that you might get to know Jesus, that you might get to know the God of the universe, 
That is one of the primary reasons. I mean, we talked about four other reasons the church exists and what it's shaped by. But that is one of the primary reasons God's people exist in this world as God's people. To declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light. This is why the church exists. And any ch- the other four, in some ways, kind of look inward when we're thinking about our community. But we would do ourselves a great disservice and we would, we would be describing in an imbalanced way the nature of church if we didn't grasp hold of this, that one of the primary reasons God has put the church in the world is so that the world might know him. So that the world might know him. And what does that mean? It's a, it's a vision month, right? So we're talking a little bit about what the implications of this are for the practice of us as a little church here in, in Willoughby, Chatswood and our time. And so if you're visiting, bear with us through this. But I think there's three implications for us. I've given them all words starting with M. First of all, there's an implication for the mundane. There's an implication for our ministries. And there's an implication for our money. First, what do I mean by the mundane? I mean this. What Peter is saying is, in effect, every part of your life, even the mundane stuff, is an opportunity for you to declare the praises of God who called you out of darkness into light. It means the neighbor who doesn't know Jesus is a person who God has put in your life for you to shine the gospel into their life. Some people say, I don't know any non-Christian people. That's just patently not true. You do. You might think, oh, but they're just the person who serves me coffee every day. But they're someone who God has put into your life so that you might be a light to them about the gospel. But what's more, you know, your gap group is a great venue to pray for the family, the friends, the neighbours, who you want to know Jesus. Just, that's just a repeating prayer. It feels, uns, uns, I don't know, it doesn't feel special, does it? But it's just a prayer. It's an act of service. It's a task that you've been given. It's the reason you gather in order that the people around you in the periphery might, might hear and know about this great God who's called you out of light, darkness into light. Secondly, ministries. If if most of your life is lived in the mundane and so therefore is where most of your mission, in a sense, is meant to take place, ministries are a great opportunity. We run ministries at our church in large part in order that people who don't know Jesus get the opportunity to do it. Um, we have Friday kids in half past six. We have, um, we have volunteers and staff who spend a lot of energy running those two ministries. You bring your kid along to that, they will have an opportunity to carry out this very task that God has given each of us. Because there'll be other, there'll be other children there who, who don't come to church, who are still trying to understand who Jesus is. A great mission opportunity. You, you could, for example, um, you may not have someone right now who you want to you bring along, but you bring your, your children along to that. You support that ministry you give them an opportunity to participate in this task. Our, our, Friday, our Friday night course, Simply Christianity, great opportunity for people to hear about Jesus, right? Most people will come to that course if a friend brings them. 
You want to dump a flyer in their letterbox? That's great. You want to bring them? They're more likely to come, stay, and actually engage with the content. It's just, it's just our experience. When people bring them and we do it together, they have much greater opportunity of engaging with, uh, with the gospel. And thirdly, our money. Tonight, today, is our mission gift day. If you're visiting, just you, you can listen in with interest, but this is not really aimed at you. Every year, we support link missionaries. We have seven of them. They're in the booklet. Now, these people go out into wider Australia and out into the world to tell people about Jesus. And one of the ways we do this, we, help, we partner in this, is by supporting them financially. We pray for them, but we also support them financially. And this Sunday is our opportunity to do it. Now, one of the things you would have noticed about all these examples is I am not talking primarily about an individual going out because what is Peter saying here? He's saying you are a nation on mission. Not you're an individual primarily on mission, but you're a nation on it. And so my encouragement for us is actually we are better together in mission than apart. We're better together in it. It's, it's actually easier to take up this responsibility and charge when we do it together. And all of the examples I've given you are actually moments where you get to do that with another person. You may not have a lot of money, but collectively we have the opportunity as God's people to bless people in ministry in very significant ways. Very significant ways. We are better together than this. And so I want to charge us that if we are this nation, as Peter describes us, right, and as the Bible has, has shown as a consistent story of God, if we are a nation on mission, then I want to invite you to be part of that. Now, one of the things Peter says in this passage is there is going to be times which kind of, um, you have to get the balance right if you want to do this task well. If you really want to be able to be out there on mission, if you want to declare the praises of God, well, you have to get a balance. And he describes the balance like this. It's in verse 11 and 12. In verse 11, he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. He says, you have to see yourself as a foreigner, as an exile in this world. But then he goes on in verse 12 to say, live such good lives among the pagans. You are a foreigner and an exile, but you're amongst amongst the world, in other words. That's why he uses the word pagans. In in Peter's time, that was just a kind of reference to people who weren't followers of Jesus. He says, you are foreigners and exiles. You belong to the heavenly kingdom, but you live in this world, amongst this world. And we're actually called to find the balance between these two things. Now, did everyone get a rubber band? If you're watching online, sorry, you don't get a rubber band. Or they can go and source one from your cabinet or something. If you didn't get a rubber band, just work along with me. Grab your rubber band, put it through your fingers like this. It's a little activity, you see. Get aesthetic learning off. It's very helpful. Uh, Now, this little pointer finger is you. Okay? We're meant to live like this. Right? Down here in the world. But always understanding and feeling a longing to be up here in the heavenly realms. Right? We're always meant to live down here. You feel that you feel that pull? We're always feeling a pull upward, but we live here, down in the world. 
Constantly with that tension. Actually, to live in this midpoint is to live like that. Being amongst the world, but always being aware that we're actually poor. We have a sense of our, our comfortable places up here. That's what we're meant to do. And that's, that's, the, that's the balance that Peter is talking about here. He says that's how you declare the praises of God in this world. You feel that challenge. You feel that tension. You feel that longing to be somewhere else. And yet you're here. Hold on to your own bed. But this is where it gets difficult for us. See, Israel, they were put in amongst the nations. But if you know anything about their story, they were terrible at this task. They just became like the nations always. They always wanted to be like the nations. Right? They, they were given this, this kind of heavenly, heavenly entitlement, this, this, the God's chosen people. right? They were up here, but they constantly felt the, the pull to be down here. God gave them such a great, such a great heritage, such a great promises, they always just felt the pull to be down here amongst everyone else. And that's like us with, with us too, you see. Because to follow Jesus in the world is to follow someone who has fundamentally been rejected by the world. This is what Peter says. He says, to those who do not believe, this is a little bit earlier in the reading, to those who do not believe the stone, now he's talking about Jesus, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. I don't know how to break this to you. To declare God's praises means you're declaring the praises of someone who most people have rejected. You're going to go into the world to declare Jesus and most people are going to think you're foolish, says Paul. Most people are going to think you're foolish. Now, you want me to say, if we do it together, everyone will love it. We ran a dumpling night, 130 people here two Fridays ago. Fantastic, right? Everyone thought, this is a great place to be. We loved it. How many guests did we have on Friday? Three. Three. When we talked about simple Christianity. You shouldn't be surprised about that. Jesus is the stone the builders rejected. But you and I always have the pull. We always feel that pull, don't we? We know we're up here, but we always feel the pull to be down here. And that pull is what, you know, we're, we're afraid of that rejection. We're afraid of it. And so we choose the world instead of choosing God. We choose the world instead of choosing God. And rather than being chosen, we live as enemies instead. Enemies of God and friends with the world. Two weeks ago, we had some friends over to dinner uh, Saturday night. Neither of the families are church families. Uh, we, really, we really like them. Their kids are great, really lovely boys who are friends with our middle um, son. And um, we really wanted to take the opportunity just to have them over, show them hospitality, get to know them a little bit. It was really lovely, right? We, we did a nice meal. All the kids were on one table. We were on another inside. Uh, food was served. And, you know, I had this moment. I thought, okay, I should say grace. This is what we always do. I chickened out. Chickened out. I felt so ashamed of this later. It's something we do at every meal in our house. 
just to say, Jesus, you're so kind, and every good gift comes from you. Thank you. I just felt, I just was, felt a bit stupid saying it. But I felt even more ashamed after it. I remember, I remember, almost after the moment had passed, thinking, man, you idiot. It's gone now. It bugged me the whole night. I woke up the next morning, I was reading the Bible. I could, just couldn't get past this. Really ashamed that I had the opportunity, just a little opportunity, of really no cost, apart from maybe just seeming a little bit antiquated or out of touch, to align myself with Christ. And I let him down. And you know what? (laughs) Some of you, your temptation here will be to say to me at the door, thanks for that story. It was really encouraging to know that someone else struggles with it too. And bless you for wanting to encourage me. But that is the wrong encouragement. That is not the comfort here. The comfort is not, isn't it great? We're all into this together. We're terrible at it. That's not the comfort. You know, you want to comfort me. That's not the comfort. I'll tell you what the comfort is. Here's the comfort. Here's where Peter starts this whole little discussion about the church. He says, as you come to him, to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house what's he saying he's saying Jesus is building this house he doesn't rely on the witness of his church he doesn't rely on your witness or mine he's doing it he's building it Jesus is the one And you might think, oh, okay, this is now a change-up. God just saw how useless Israel was, so he sent Jesus to to do a better job. Now, Israel was always just a shadow of Jesus. So, you know, remember that Isaiah 42 passage, right? Israelites, when they read that, they think, oh, that's us. No, it was never about them. It was about this, this servant figure. And then Simeon, Simeon, who's this old man... In the story of Luke, Luke's story of Jesus, right? Old man in the temple. Jesus is brought as a baby for one of the early kind of Jewish rituals. He's brought to the temple as an early baby. In fact, there's a stained glass window in the far corner. You can find a picture of this. Anyway, it's recounted in Luke's gospel. Simeon, this old man, they put Jesus in his hands. Here's what he says. Looking at Jesus, says, My eyes have seen your salvation. He's praying to God which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. You see the language? He's holding Jesus and says, ah, here is the light. John will say, the light of the world. See, Jesus is the one who is drawing all people to him. It's Jesus He he draws all people to him by going to the cross. He's not afraid of the mockery and the shame of the world. In fact, my voice belongs to the mocking crowd, but Jesus died on the cross for that mocking crowd, of which I am one. And the great assurance for me is Jesus is not dependent on my efforts. In fact, he came and he gave his life for me. 
And so actually for me, to share the gospel is to bring others with me to the foot of the cross. That's what it is, to bring others with me. So we are better together. But what we're bringing them to is Jesus. And this gospel, which says that God, God will love you even when you reject him. God offers to save you even when you're ashamed of him. That gospel is so compelling. It's so compelling. Because it's given to you for free. You know, when I was a a lawyer, I worked in Circular Quay, a beautiful building which looked out on the Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. All these young lawyers in their expensive suits. Uh, We'd all come in off the train up into our, you know, 12th, 13th floor offices. We're all very sophisticated. Except when someone would come up and say, hey, guess what? They're giving out free squishy balls at Circular Quay. (laughs) We'd all just bolt down to Circular Quay to get a squishy ball. (laughs) Who doesn't love something that's free? Jesus Christ paid every, every cent of debt that is owed against my name. And that gospel of the freedom that Christ offers us is so compelling. And all you do is bring people with you to the foot of the cross. To the foot of the cross. Let us be a holy nation, but also a people who have received mercy. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your your rich gospel, which is mercy and grace to sinners like me, to sinners like us. And we thank you that your church is built on this extraordinary free offer, not on the work of your people, not on the skills or the eloquence or the sophistication of your people, but on the mercy and the grace of your rejected son, the Lord Jesus, who gave himself for us. Heavenly Father, send your Holy Spirit with great power upon us that our hearts would be so richly and deeply convicted by this gospel and our need for it that we would not be left in our seats but stirred to go out. We pray this in Jesus' name.